0: Hi, hello, and welcome back to the last episode of the first season of Culture of the Day. I can't believe it's been a whole season. Well, I mean, not that the season is very long. I mean, let me sit up right for you. Um... I mean it's only 10 episodes but that's like 10 well technically 11 weeks cuz I took a a week off cuz I was very 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 overwhelmed but um yeah it's been it's been 11 weeks um started end of September I'm wrapping it up in early December um I mean I'll go into all the thank yous and everything later on but I do appreciate you for sticking all the way to this episode, which I'm actually recording back-to-back from episode 9, so it won't be as special. Mean, it's special, but it won't, maybe, uh, uh. one day, one day I'll have a coherent thought, I swear. Um, but yeah, so today's episode is titled All About Art. And it's going to be, um, structure differently than the other ones because I am going to do music that relate to art and then I'm going to delve into art. I'm going to do a condensed course on art history and in hindsight having finished writing everything I did perpetuate a lot of a um, canonical vision of art history which I kind of like realized as finished but it is part of how it is taught and even though we have to deconstruct it and kind of like step away from such perception there is there is something still chronological like like to situate you in time it's not comprehensive it's not completely comprehensive it's semi-comprehensive because i tried my best and then i went into madness I slowly descended into madness my brain couldn't do it I worked on that for like two and a half hours it is ten fifteen at the moment I am fighting for my life but I wanted those episodes to come out on time and a couple of weeks the next couple of weeks are going to be hectic as I've mentioned in my last episode that you'll hear in a couple of days but anyway so this episode I had the title from like episode two, I think. I know I wanted to talk about art because that's what I do. This is the master that I do. This is what I study. This is one of the thing I truly sincerely love is art history. And so for a little background, I am doing, well, I think I'm re- repeating myself, but I am doing a master in art history, curating and collection at the University College Dublin. And so basically what I want to do later in life is Be a curator is to work in museum space gallery space and art infrastructure to make a change to link up with the community to bring in an upcoming artist to like give people a chance to use their voice and yeah that's pretty that's pretty much it um so yeah i knew what i wanted to talk about but i didn't structure it until today so it was just like I'm going to talk about art and then I wanted to talk about I wanted to put in the music I wanted to put not your muse because first of all obviously use arts you know the whole theme of like the artist and its subject and whatnot um but then I already had used it and um Celeste actually had a live version at the MoMA um where they did like one artist i need to put my slippers on because my feet are very cold i'll be right back give me where I come back i'll be back in a second i have to get my slippers because our living room is so fucking cold but the momo had this thing where they picked a couple of artists and then each would perform a song in relation to the world of an artist and i know that she was doing hers on salvador dali which i don't like because you know terrible fucking man but aren't they all um but yeah and then I was like okay fuck but then I was like looking for movies that had a relation to art and there were none like I didn't want to do a movie about an artist just because I don't know like that's not like those are not about artists that I care about and yeah and I didn't want to do that so I kind of like was struggling in terms of The format and how should I like mess with the structure? Is it a good idea? And then I was like, "Well, fuck it." I said I'm gonna talk about art, so let's actually just get into it. Um, All right. So for the music, the first song is and "You Need to Laugh a Little Bit About That." Mona Lisa, Mona Lisa, by Phineas. a little funny right because it's like i'm gonna do a podcast about art and you know i'm putting a song titled mona lisa mona lisa um but it is actually a really cute song it's that it's for his girlfriend claudia and i don't know it's it's a good song it's cute and you know kind of like Move around and bop your head because it's really fun. And then you know it also deals with the Mona Lisa, which is considered the best and most perfect work of art within the Western world, right? Um, And that's because fun fact, if you don't know why the Mona Lisa is so popular, well now it's just like a vicious cycle that started when it was stolen. About and how popular it became, but I'll talk about those vicious cycle in a minute. But it is because it was a portrait and it focused solely on the representation of human anatomy and it was executed so perfectly and it was kind of like the paroxys, more like the epitome of Da Vinci's art. So yeah, and I think, you know, the best jokes are always told twice. So the next song is Mona Lisa by Sabrina Carpenter. take your cares off just stay a couple more you don't have to be don't have to be a stranger go and get a little closer play your mind games we don't do that here so put your bed in before i disappear you don't have to be don't have to be a stranger come and get a little closer and gotta have- Just stay yeah, yeah. Both of my eyes before i if i'm one thing is that i love sabrina carpenter um and you know i think that this one kind of like plays a bit into a dynamic with mona lisa mona lisa because you know from Phineas' point of view he's like completely de- c- kind of codependent on his girlfriend like she's his everything and like you know She came in when he least expected it, swooped him off his feet, stole his heart, you know, kept it in her pocket, you know, and and everything. And whereas with Sabrina, it's more of like, don't let me hanging like the Mona Lisa, you know, don't let me waiting that long without any contact with, you know, any human being is just like there, plastered, insulated from the world. And I don't know, I think that's kind of like, I like that, especially when, you know, it's also kind of like, and I feel for me also like understand that like this is your last chance. I'm giving you the opportunity to kinda like cut it out. And if you don't, then um yeah, I'm probably gonna end up bleeding. But yeah. Um it's kinda like, you know, stop giving out to people who take it for granted and won't genuinely appreciate you, if that makes sense. And the last song, and I can't believe it's already ten minutes in, like, we're in for an hour and a half episode, but anyway the next song is C'est Magnifique by Melody Gardot and Antonio Zambujo. Mm-hmm. Doesn't This song is a bit different because it doesn't fit into any, like, you know, painting or or art form or, like, you know, iconic piece from the 15th century. I think the, the 14th? I don't know. I'm not good with dates. Um, this one, to me, feels... It captures what I want to be an art historian slash a curator to feel. Like, it feels fancy, but it feels caring it feels like it's involved like one's passionate about what they're doing i don't know it's like being fancy and everything but not detached like very very delicate and very considerate and very graceful and yeah like having those qualities and everything that you enterprise and and you know you try to understand how you can honestly try and how you can allow for things to make sense in a way you hadn't think about um it also feels like a hug with a loved one when the sun is high during the summer um, and the wind is blasting and you just got out of the water so you're kind of half freezing. So, hey, you take it as you want it. But now that the music is out the way, we can, oh my God, I'm looking at the notes that I have and I'm tempted to kill myself. <laughs> like immediately just jump off the bridge. Um, but anyway, um, huh, so... um. Starting with the foundations, because only then can I begin to explain and emphasize how it's bullshit, I guess, which is also in and of itself perpetuating, like I was saying, all those very Western, very imperialist standards of the canon of art, of the notion of genius, of like, you know, the artist as God and as a creator. I am only a master's student. (laughs) I'm trying my best. But... So the way Western art history is understood is chronologically. Each art movement is followed by another one, which around the 13th century starts contradicted, contradic- contradicting one another, um, which I'll get back when we get there. Um, so, you know, it starts with pre prehistorical art, even though that doesn't really qualify as fine art, but falls more under the anthropological lens. Um, then we have classical art, so that's around, I think, 5th century. B.C.E. with the roman and the greek sculpture that represents mythological gods so you have like example of the payas de velitri and the venus de mio which are staples of what high art is was contemporary to themselves thought to be so like people in the renaissance or afterwards were like oh my god high art and then at the time they were just like statues that you have in your home but anyway. Then you have the medieval time with a medieval art, naturally, which is a lot of Christian art and a lot of like religious art, a lot of iconography. This is when we start like dealing into Roman and Gothic arts. So Roman came before and was a bit more like, I think around like round and like idealized figure, but kind of like and I remember that from my first art history class in undergrad, and it was because during the Romanesque time, you know, the thought of the apocalypse that was imminent was a big one, so people were kind of, like, afraid that they were going to die, so what they would do is that they would, like, create icons that were, like, supposed to be very close to God and show God how, like, pious they were and how, like great they were and how like so they everything was kind of idealized and then the time of the apocalypse never came and thus was brought out gothic art and that was a bit more like physically accurate it was a bit more of like shape and structure and like intricacies which is why you know gothic churches are like like notre dame de paris the Reims cathedral Chartres cathedral as well i believe Mm -hmm. Um, don't take my word for it but i think so, you know, then, so that you get more and more towards like an accurate representation of human being. Because like before Jesus looks like a man, a tiny man, like a, a tiny man, like a man the size of a baby, but a man nonetheless, like a full grown man. He had a job, nine to five, he had bills to pay, taxes. Anyway, um. so then after the Gothic, if I'm not wrong, is the Renaissance, which, oh my God i hate the renaissance like i don't hate it as a movement but i hate how centered it is to everything about art history so the renaissance much like his name it names implies it name implies um it's a rebirth of art history and kind of like considered in a lot of the art history like the starting point like everything before that can be studied but usually it's more in terms of architecture or maybe religious iconography but after that it is kind of like where we get into the art as a form as an art form as a high art form not simply as a craftsmanship so this is when the artist separates himself from the craftsman it's not only working for commissions it's actually like making a work of art that has virtue by looking at it and by understanding it within the realm of aesthetics and beauty so it lasted from the 14th to the 17th century And uh, it is considered the origin, the origin of high art, right? Um, And it was by that point that the humanist shift happened around the 15th century, where it's a focus on humankind, on the human body, the human mind, and so on. There is also an emphasis on scientific perception, and you know, science being like understood better and like not considered like devilry, like you know. Like it was before with Galileo and, you know, where like scientists get all crazy. No, it's actually accepted to be a form of reasoning and it's actually like a proper science, just not madness. So that's the renaissance for you. So naturally you have Michelangelo, Vasari, who's a big art historian and also an artist. But, you know, like yeah, yeah, you have those Um, Raphael, Titian, I think. Those guys, like, you know, the guys that you know naturally and that you think are worth a lot of money. Um, Then you get the Baroque. The Baroque? What was that? The Baroque that was from the 16th century to the 18th century. And that kind of, like, took a step back from high Renaissance and focused on more of a later movement, which is called Mannerism. And that was a focus on... Huh? how would I put it, like forms and like eccentricity in a bit, but like still very tied to Renaissance of like, oh my God, it has to be like high. Like, what was that again? Like, it has to be like beautiful and like perfect and symmetric and like well-studied and whatever, whatever, yada, yada, yada. But it was a bit more eccentric and it was mainly focused on architecture, even though I remember taking a class in my undergrad on Baroque and I really liked it. It was really fun. Um, and you know, around that time, sorry, my throat was dry. Um, so around that time you have like artists like Peter Paul Rubens and at the same time as you have the Baroque in like the Baroque that's closer to Italy so that you'll have like the Caravaggios and, um. I forgot their name, but, like, the two brother and the cousin that, like, implemented landscape. And this is an abomination. Like, people are going to be like, you're an art history student, really? Yeah, listen, there is too many white men in history. It's getting confusing. Basically, there was, like, it was, I know it was Luke, Antonio, and a third one. But anyway, they built, like, this school where they would focus on landscape. And they were actually the first one to, like, rehabilitate landscape into the hierarchy of genre. So that's the whole thing that I won't get into because it's bullshit, but basically landscape and everyday life was like the lower the lowest genre, and historical portrait was the highest or like historical portrayal of scenes were the high was the highest so you have the baroque in Italy with artists like you know like I just quoted, and then you get the baroque in like the Netherlands and you know Flemish baroque, so then you have like artists like Vermeer. You have Peter Paul Rubens, like I was talking about, and Rubens' work was a lot in the round. Um, unlike, for example, Rembrandt, who's also a Baroque artist, who's you know considered and really appreciated for the detail of his work and the rendering of texture and the the playfulness in the eye and like the human really essence that he brings to the work. Rubens is a lot more focusing on like those religious scenes and like scenes from the Bible because most of the commissions were for churches at the time, right, or, like, very high and wealthy patrons. Um, And, you know, especially in the Netherlands with the West Indies and, like, this whole, the whole trade and with Brazil, et cetera, there was, like, a lot of perception of we're, like, elevating ourselves, so we need art to, like, elevate our house with ourselves, um but yeah, at the end of the Baroque of the Baroque movement there is kinda of like two pathway there's two big schools. There is Rubens and Poussin. So Poussin had a preference for line, for symmetry, what the mind would consider perfect, something that was really close to the classical period. Whereas Rubens was a lot more um towards the importance of color, of symbolism, work in the round of human figures, and you know, like women who had like like, you know, not even women, but just like muscle, like outrance, genre c'était du muscle partout, 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 genre c'était, c'était, c'était bouleversant, n'est-ce pas? But anyway, so right after Baroque, Rubens School kind of won that contest slash battle over Poussin, and that brings in the Rococo, which is sometimes considered itself an extension of the Baroque, much like kind of the Mannerism is an extension of Renaissance, even though it is a movement in itself. Uh, but basically. Rococo is, if Baroque is mannerism taken to an extreme, then Rococo is Baroque taken to an extreme. It's pastoral scenes, it's pastel colors, scenes in plein air, focus on the rounded body, often childish and definitely with predatorial tendencies. It's a lot of plumpy women with rosy cheeks, you know, and like interior scenes and making fun and having lovers and a lot of like hidden meaning about virtue and everything. Um, and, you know, one of the most famous, I wouldn't say, I think I think a lot of people would consider it the manifesto, that or Boucher's portrait of Marie Antoinette. Um, but, you know, the escarpole by Fragonard, which is this painting full of greenery where you have a woman that's on the swing and she's being pushed by her husband, you know, like back and forth. But when she gets to the fourth, her lover is hidden in the bush and kind of like, weaving at him and you know she kind of like opens her legs and throws her shoes away so that her lover can get a glimpse at her inner thighs um that would be the manifesto of go um so afterwards you have Nicolas poussin's final victory so they get the la- the school get the last word and this brings forth the neoclassicism which was brought in especially with the grand tour and this refound Interest in classical art, but also in France, it was brought out by the um, academies, like the academies of architecture, the academies of painting, the academies of music. This notion that to build power, to build a political power, because I think at the time it was around Louis XIV's, um, Louis XIV around Louis the Fourteenth, like, like rise to power. It was a lot of like we had the power is not only political. It needs to be cultural, like people need to know that France is the capital of art. Which is also around the time that the... What is it called? I forgot the name, but I worked on that last year. It is the Imperi Translatio Studi, which is the translation or the like transfer of power and studies. So that's like the transfer of power, political and cultural from one place to another, namely Italy to France. Um, and so the grand tour, like I was saying, was this travel enterprise where British and Irish gentlemen would get a sense of classical education. So they would leave Britain and Ireland and they would go to Italy and sometimes they would even go to Greece and they would sketch and they would like do tours and they would learn about like, you know, the classical art historical text and everything and kind of like build this like culture of like fine art, and, you know, the refined mind and the refined body and as at the time classical wasn't again considered the highest and most proper form of art and um, and this kind of fall back to classical time is still present and was already present especially like you know with the renaissance but even to this day there is this often when you talk to scholar like their interest is always into like 18th century or 17th century art like classical architecture or like Classical, neoclassical arts, I think it's like something that's so very potent to this day. And so the Manifesto of Neoclassicism is the Oath of Horati, as it represents the value that should be upheld to for men, so in terms of moral respect and honor. And as you can see in this painting, and I think I'll try to find a link to all the painting and put them in the description, but there is a emphasis on perspective. Technique is allied with the value represented within the painting. Like you know, everything is straight, everything is symmetrical, everything is perfectly um organized because a perfection that you see is a perfection of the mind. But yeah. And then from Renaissance onward, like I've emphasized, each movement is argued in an oversimplified and convenient manner that it contradicts the precedent. So after you get neoclassicism you get the one and only romanticism, which is a complete 180 from neoclassicism because there is no focus on technique properly. Like it's a, it's I think a drive back to color, but not in like an over like overly done manner. Like there is a complete shift from like biblical scenes. It's more towards color as a way to represent the emotions and the inner turmoil of things. Like it's it's a bit dark, it's a bit like tumultuous and it's like very very somber. Somber I'd say. Um the key figures of romanticism are classical, like like are classics. Not classical, they're classics, like you know them. Uh Goya, De La Jericho, like you know, liber- Liberty guiding the people, the death of Sardopoulos, I think is that, and of course the Raft of Medusa, which is the manifesto of um, Romanticism, because it is seeing like the body like so thoroughly represented but it's like dark and it's deep and it's pulling you in and you're part of the boat and you need to feel the emotion of those of all those people that were left to fend for themselves that were not care about and also uh, perhaps if you decide to see it like that a criticism on slavery but with artists like the quite is also when western artists starts approaching the notion of orientalism and that's when the West and East dichotomy, dichotomy, becomes like prominent. Like it's because before the West East was considered like you know the West was like Northern Europe the what the East was like Southern Europe. So you'd have Greece, you'd have Turkey, but here it's like very much like us to the West and them to the East, right? Um. So you're all in the emotions. You're like, and so that's like around like the eighteen hundreds about everything that follows is about that time so you get all of that all that turmoil all those emotions the dark sides and the dark values of humanity and boom here comes realism that solely focus on reality um so realism as it names indicate is this very focus of on what you see is what you get um the leading artist if you don't know him i mean come on, come on if you're french or like if you have any like french knowledge like gustave courbet a classical figure um with the burial at ornon um the artist studio and then there was another one i forgot what was the other one there's like those two big ones that are, there's the burial at ornon oh the um, the stone worker the stone breaker i think um but with Courbet, especially it was political agenda hidden under this very realistic painting and then, you know, like the, the birth of the world as well, which is like a woman's uh, vagina, which I think is still at the Musée d'Orsay. But yeah. And realism was kind of like close to naturalism. It was not the same, but that was kind of like linked through the Barbisson school, which implement and strengthened the notion of painting in en plein air which was not possible before the invention of aim in, the solid pigment like that was a game changer for painters cuz they didn't have to like mix the pigment the pigment with oil in the studio they could just get like those solid like pigment tube like you know like painting tube like we have like gouache or oils and just go out in plein air and just paint and then mix and match and oh my god um and so the Barbizon school is titled because they were all painting in a village called Barbizon um and and they were illustrating how nature really was and the beauty of the cows and the fields and the water it was usually smaller scale painting it was not really big but it was like definitely an emphasis on like perspective and you know like showcasing how much you can paint in one spot and how good that can be so then after realism which is all about the real and it's all about like you know oh my god like this is what you get you get impressionism which is my one of my personal favorite like i'm a I'm a basic bitch to my core and I think you should not hold it against me. But Basically, impressionism is like, yeah, like sc- scenes of everyday life are great. Well, actually, that's not what realism was really about. But anyway, they're like, that's great. Consider painting it through our glance. So like you're not trying to be perfect. You're not trying to like give a photo like rendering. But rather you're giving I am DC an impression (laughs) um and so why you may ask and i can talk to you i I can talk you through it because i did take a course on impressionism and post-impressionism and basically at the time of high like revolutionary like um breakthrough there was a need to capture life as it was because it was going to disappear in an instant right with the industrial revolution with all the communes and you know like the fall of the bourbon dynasty and the beginning of like the emperor and then bam the monarchy's back again but then it's not you needed to capture everything that was around you as quickly as possible because it would be gone by tomorrow right and and with the notion and the the fact that they were already painting in plein air there was like more accessibility to just paint what you would see you know and it was like capturing all those breakthroughs especially like technically like the industrial prowess, like I had to capture that because it would be gone. And I had another point that I forgot. It was also at a time where Paris, when Paris was being completely redone by Haussmann. So there was this need to capture what was happening, what was going through. But it was also this focus on, on light, on air, and how that impacts how you perceive things, right? This is why I think Monet is crucial figure and you know and now like oh my god we've heard about him so much but i think his career is really interesting because you know in the beginning you have work that are like closer to realism closer to money but then there is kind of like this perception of like oh my god this is kind of his thing so he starts with the impression early impressionist work and then he gets towards the end of his career into like the series which I, i've always been mind blown by that where he would take a subject a motif that is called and would paint it over and over and over again under different, like, weather, um, weather, circumstances. my God, my nose is itching me. Like he would paint it under different circumstances, whether it be like weather or it just be like the light or it'd be like the agency of the place and everything. And he'd like, so you have, that's why you have like 15 haystack, 32 Thames, like 15 Rouen Cathedral and so on and so forth, because only in all of those series and only with all those different perception of that same motif could you get the actual true motif, right? Like, like if it was like a fragmented piece, like, you know, like how you look through a prism and it's like refracted light, that's what I think from what I remember was kind of like the goal. Um, and then I will, and if I get into impressionism, I'm going to talk about Marie Brackmont, who's, who's the proof of why the canon does not work because it, choo- it pick and chooses which artist deserves to be broadcasted and deserve light and then disregard the rest. Um, if I talk about impressionism for the art historical student or art historical like passionate people, Bert Morizzo is like, oh my God, impressionism was so great because it's the time that like women started actively painting and you know, they were recognized for it. like They were showcased at exhibitions and so on. And um, and you're like Berthe Morisot, of course she was like Monet's stepsister. She was so talented, and then you say Marie Bracon and they're all like who? The fuck are you talking about? Whereas her style was also very, very, very close to the one of Monet, where like she would capture the light and she would capture how she'd perceive things and the visions of it all. But her husband was like, no, Impressionism. They prioritize color over light. And in my household, you shall not paint the Impressionist way. And then just lock his studio and she never painted again. Um, Yeah, and then most of her work went into private collection. Her son, Louis, I believe, um, just like distributed it. And, you know, she was barely ever talked about again. But yeah, so that's fun. Um, But then Impressionism constitute the leader of the avant-garde movement which in turn regrouped movements such as neo-impressionism pointillism a movement that followed towards the end of the 19th century and the early 20th century because we a lot of people argue that impressionism stopped with the death of manet in 1896 but a lot of them argue that manet was not the leader of the movement like he was the unrecognized leader because he never called himself an impressionist he was always realist right because impressionism were were like disregarded by the academy like they had to create their own exhibition because the salon were kind of like not taking them seriously really and also a shift in kind of like how art was exhibited was through the salon des refusés in 1873 when like the critics and the judge at the salon were so harsh they rejected about half like three quarter of the the submissions And then a lot of artists just went to the king and they were like, what the fuck? Like, our art is not that bad. And then the king was like, fine, fine, fine. Get the Luxembourg Museum, do something. And they did. But anyway, and so those movements, they kind of follow. So neo-impressionism and pointillism, they kind of like follow in the path of impressionism, taking it to the extreme. And so that's when you kind of like stop having this like um, 180 turns between each movement. Um, and that furthers and goes into modern art, which is composed of movements such as sur- surrealism, Fauvism, cubism, futurism, expressionism, all these, um, um Leading, But that also meant leading to a belief that art shouldn't be political, which was the case before, which was the case with impressionism, which was definitely the case with realism and romanticism, right? No, now art should be art. Art should just exist for the sake of art. Notably called l'art pour l'art, and that is also that also led to the emphasis and the rise of the artistic American stage, especially through the mu- through museums such as the MoMA, which is something I'd argue started with Mary Cass- Mary Cassatt, and Impressionism. She was one of the big figure of Impressionism, and she was an American painter. So she painted in Europe a lot, and then just went back to the state. And she was widely recognized because it was like, oh my God, you know, are one famous artist, like you know. That's the one who achieved fame in Europe. And if Europe is the capital of art, well, the continent of art, then surely that's a great artist. So then you have, like, the drawings of Albert Bart, who was, I think, or Bart, I don't know, one of the first presidents of the MoMA. And then you have all this gist that's just, like... I guess it's helpful to get a chronological perspective on it. But it is so reductive and so imperialist that it just disregards everything that is not Western that there's not that is not European and that is not a legacy of Renaissance as, like, useless, right? Um, but yeah, now that we've established the basis of the canon of art, which is what is... Con- the canon of art is the baseline of art. That's the old masters that have shaped what we call art history. So that's all... Raphael, the Titian, the Michelangelo, the um, the, uh, Jean-Dominique Ingres, um, all those figures like Delacroix, Géricault, Courbet, all those figures that were hated at some point and then rehabilitated and so on and so forth. And so one thing we can notice is that it is very white and it's very male. Like all the artists I've mentioned, I've mentioned a couple of women, but the way the canon is taught in college or maybe even in high school is that it is basically basically just men, right? Um, and that is when the approaches of art history come into play as they try to diversify and reshape what we consider to be worth studying within art history. So you have the initial, very analytical, very focused on the work as a work itself. So you have, you know, styles, aesthetic, architecture, visual culture, um, semiotics that follow, that are more, I'd say, like semantic approaches and psychological ones, because they focus on art history. And they're like a bit mental, like like, they were not my favorite approaches to study, really, I'm not gonna lie. you know they take into consideration high and low art and how professional and art historian establish those like classification system as well um you know, and the they do mention a lot the switching position and the kind of like the perspective and the inner and conscious bias that shapes those position um but yeah, such approaches do infer in problems that um art history encounters in terms of boxing up the subject whilst limiting and uniformizing them but to an extent that is more focused on the artwork it is less focused on notions of identity or notions of the artist but a lot more focused on the art in itself Um, and so they led us to fall back on the preconception and stereotypical understanding of art forms art movements art geography and art histories And then we get on the social history of art, which is my shit. So that's the second, and I'd say the most known group of approach. So the theories are Marxism, which is the focus on economies and financial aspect and how that shapes art and how art is always shaped through a financial lens. And the only meaning of art and how art can be impactful is if it raises a revolution. I think that's the first wave of Marxism. but, you know like whether it be through the like the financial aspect can be brought through the representation through the means to create art and this is when there is kind of a shift from the subject to the production of it how is it produced who's the patron how do you get to that what were the condition at the time how was this artwork created um and then you got feminism which is let's say the most known one um and this it's definitely self-explanatory it focuses on the perception of gender and how it has shaped art history and society in general. Most specifically, it deals with how women have been excluded from the canon of art because of their imposed social roles. So the great theorists, are Arlene Donahue and Griselda Pollock, like those are the main two ones, and they emphasize that the reason why there is no quote unquote great woman artist. It's not because it's some innate talent that men have. Like, you know, the, the notion of male genius, it's not a real thing. It's made up. The reason why there has been no quote unquote great woman artist is because the standards are made by men for men. The genius, the notion of genius, let's say during the Renaissance, was the study of the body, was how accurate you could be reproducing a body. You could only do that if you could study a body. However, were women allowed in, like, you know, nude studies? No, they were not. So they had to try their best, and that was not up to male standards. And then not only that, but were they actually allowed to paint in the studio? No. Most of the great, most of the artists that we know now during the Renaissance or during the Baroque period, such as Gentileschi, you know, because she's a classic figure, um, is because their parents, like their father, not their parents, their father were artists. And so that transcends time, you know, like. If your dad is an artist and a painter and you're always kind of like around and helping in whatever ways you can, you're going to start painting eventually, right? Um, So that's kind of like that approach. Um, And, you know, kind of like the rejection of the notion of genius, because, you know, there is no such thing as genius. And then you have queer theory, which focuses on the relationship of sexuality and how that shapes identity as well, offering a perception of the work of art through lens of the artist's implication and sexual orientation. So, for example, one that I saw and studied this year was Paul Cadmu And he was an artist that took inspiration in the Renaissance study of the body and the nude and kind of, like, transferred that to, like, a more contemporary time, which was the 1930s for him. And a lot of people and a lot of mainstream and a lot of scholars were arguing that it was gay art because it was very sensual, it was very homoherotic. But he was like, I'm not a gay artist he was gay but he was like i'm not a gay artist stop saying i'm a gay artist i'm not and you know queer theory i think also brings like the impact that has on audience and the humanization of minoritized voices because you know especially with like the queer community well the lgbtq ai plus community it's been a lot of like dehumanization and like kind of like considering them as not as not properly like human and you know deserving of respect um and one one person from my um master group this year is doing her thesis on a um lesbian photographer that whole like approach was to bring out to use her subject as muses and kind of like focus on like the intimacy of you know the uh lgbtqai plus love and relationship that they had which i i saw the pictures and i was sold it was it was beautiful forgot the name um And then you have postcolonial theory, which focuses on what exists at the margins. Um, And most theories disregard race, feminist, Marxism, all of the social art histories disregard race um, to focus on other facets of identity, which is something that I've always felt before even like pinpointing and like coming to term or like getting familiar with postcolonial theory. It was that like I could never truly assimilate feminism because of the way it was established. It was for me when you said feminism it was white women it didn't imply women of color it was just white women and so postcolonialism colonialism focused on the relationship between imperial and indigenous culture and how they impact one another affects and evolve through one another and it does not limit itself to one method in particular unlike feminist queer or marxist right post-colonial can be about Postcolonial can incorporate feminist theory as it can incorporate queer theory, Marxist theory, semiotics, um, science, aesthetic, architectural. It can be anything because the focus is the margin. But one of the issues with that is once you focus on what's on the margin, you make it the center of the work. And if you use other methodologies such as the one I just quoted, feminist and so on, you're using a methodology that's at the center to analyze a community or a case study at the margin so that's pretty much it um that's kind of like that is a run through of everything i studied in my master's program (laughs) but um the art historical field is conflicted because there is a need to challenge the canon but revisionism which is some extent what feminist has been doing on a surface level is can only take you so far like you can only include so many artists in the canon but there are still so many that are being disregarded that are not being talked about because you know there's no interest in them like they might be in the archive, but still, like, people are not interested, and that's not what appeals to someone, to researcher, which I'll go back to in, in a second. But, you know, revisionism doesn't work. And we can't very well just construct the canon either, because how do you reconstruct it? Because the canon, as we know it, is something that's been formed since the 15, since the 15th century. So it's, like, it's something that's been going on for, like, almost 600 years, no more than 600 years. 700 years I'm really bad with centuries and years and you know usually when when we of like talk about destructing the canon it's a lot of like rejecting everything that links back to the renaissance as it is the center of the canon and it is what shapes the canon into incorporating or rejecting artists namely the male genius and how it is something innate that men have um so if you exclude that then that leaves you with more modern but even modern art is shaped by the Renaissance, right? Um, An art history per its name has to do with history of art. It's evolution, but such change through time cannot solely be linear, which is the issue of the canon. The canon is linear. It is one movement after the other, after the other. And they're all happening at the same time and they're, well, not at the same time, but they're all happening at the same, in the same place, right? It disregards anything that is not Western, and that is African or African arts, Asian arts. And, you know, like when they they tried to do the first comprehensive map of art history, so that was in the 1890s, I reckon. African African art was, first of all, not considered. It was considered completely primitive and was not worthy, nor should really be focused on. And, and then um, Asian art was like in a time outside of time. Same with Islamic art, which, you know, even the terms are very like, very like derogatory because, you know, you have Western art, but Western art is broken into all of those different movements from, you know, pre, well, let's say medieval to like contemporary. But African art, for example, is pre-colonization and post-colonization. It's pre as in traditional or some some African scholars call it a classical African art and then colonization you know, and that's, like, modern and contemporary, and that's including, like, techniques and iconography that relies heavily on Western methods and approaches and technique, right? When we focus on sculptures and masks in the pre-colonized time, it has nothing to do with, like, the proportion of the body. It's more of the proportion of the mind and how you perceive them and the symbolism of them. And, you know, it's kind of, like, has nothing to do with, with what would be considered high art, it's not necessarily secular, it's usually often very symbolic, very religious, and like, you know, it's for like praying purposes, and like, you know, keeping the house safe, and praying to the gods, and then it's just very, and then after that, like, post-colonization is just falling back heavily into, oh my god, it's 11pm, falling back into the Western technique and iconography. I really don't know where I'm going with all of that, as you may have noticed. Um, but like I was saying, as I was writing, I kind of realized that to some extent I perpetuated how art is understood and perceived, how Western art is understand and perceive. Um, because I do think that once it's kind of like implemented within our way of thinking, there is kind of like no way of understanding it differently because you take, you know, like how you look at a globe and, you know, you have different perception on like a, a globe. It's like, Eurocentric Eurocentric or american centric right and that can completely shift how you perceive it and like as a european kid you can't really read a map that has america at its center because that's just weird like that's all distorted and twisted and that's kind of like how i perceive it um what else i mean the issues are that we keep holding on to past movements like mind you movements that have been set in tradition by renaissance artists like art history is first and foremost. Something that was created by the artist as a means to understand it, explain it and document it, right? Like we keep holding on to like the Renaissance and the Baroque and the Neoclassicism and like we keep revisiting those like movements again and again and again and again and again and again and again. Oh my god. I'm gonna had this discussion in, in in my module last time where i was like aren't you all bored of the renaissance like i'm tired of this shit like what do you mean yourself studying the renaissance like okay it's pretty it's great whatever it was so far long ago but aren't you aren't you no like i'm tired like i'm fed up like i don't want to study that anymore um and even if we keep documenting that we keep like adding our own biases onto that and we just like further and further and further like anchoring of of the movement well of the canon rather and like we fall back onto the same subject and we rehash the same thing that's been done before But we always try to add like some obscure dimension without truly looking at, at what is in front of us in our present time like we're so focused on understanding history through our present time lens that we kind of like completely miss the point and that is like, you know, we already understand art through a Western perception. And that means a secular object that should solely be looked at and has no true function whatsoever, right? Like, even the medieval art, it's something that was taken from church that had a religious function, but it was stripped away from that original context and put into the museum for, like, us to, like, solely look at it. 11 make a wish. And, yeah, you know... And it's like those Western museums, they eat that up. It's like paintings that are worth millions because they're nice to be looked at, even when they inform even when they inform the reality of the time, right? of a time so foreign that we can't understand. It. we're like, oh my God, it still serve no other purpose than to be looked at, which would be fine if there was other type of art to acknowledge and recognize through those institutions you know like other, are there art that had a meaning but if it has meaning if it has a function it shouldn't be in the museum and don't even get me started on the imperialism and bi subjectivity of the museum and how it assumes that per- permanently it's like oh i'm the authority figure i know what i'm doing i know what art should and should not be in the museum and it's fucking like imperialism and it's, it's you know it's just perpetrating like you know well minoritized voices shouldn't really be in there because it's kind of don't fit and you know but there is a reason it doesn't fit is because you don't want it to fit. So anyway, I guess the takeaway points would be if I can summarize it the best of my abilities is that for most of its time, Western art history has had a focus on the human body, on the accuracy of representation, and this was what was qualified to be genius, you know. And that is where the notion of genius comes, like this notion of like men as an artist recreating the world of God, right? Not only that, but when this got too boring, those white genius men started switching and taking inspiration from non-Western arts, which they clustered under the terms of African art, Asian art, native art, Islamic art, and so on, choosing and picking what they felt would be the most appropriate so that they could be considered genius once again, you know, like forward thinker, like, oh my God, like they're focusing on quote unquote primitive art, like, oh my God, this is genius. Nobody would have thought about it except them, you know, but those same art and iconographies were criticized when they were made by people from the margin, you know, by people of color um, and so on. But yeah, such consideration, I think, shapes what is presented in the museum which shapes what is appreciated by the audience and following the 19th century model of the museum in addition to the rise of capitalism has become the vicious cycle i was talking about before the museum becomes a brand you think about the louvre you think about the tate modern you think about the met oh my god you think about the momo you think about the Musée d'Orsay. it's all brand it's all a brand you think about the british museum it's all a brand And so what happened is this vicious cycle of interest leads to fund, which leads to more research, which leads to more marginalization and unfortunately more interest in particular work of art, which leads to more fund, which leads to more research and so on and so forth. Why do you think there is always a like 30 minute line in front of the Mona Lisa when you have the um, Nos Ducan right behind you, which is... 5,000 times the size of the Mona Lisa like what do you think there is because the Louvre is branded and cap and is branded And capitalizes from the Mona Lisa from having it there like you walk through the Grand Gallery and it's all like quote-unquote masterpiece of the old masters like you have so many Da Vinci's Caravaggio's Ram not Rembrandt but like a lot of like those Italian high Renaissance painters And you just walk through them. You don't see it. Because it's also all the same iconography. It's the Virgin Mary. It's the saints. It's baby Jesus. Oh my God, it's baby Jesus with a goat. It's baby Jesus with a rabbit. Oh my God, it's the Archangel Gabriel coming to tell Mary, oh my God, God bless your pregnant girl. Right? Um, Which also kind of shows that like the audience kind of like is focusing on what is targeted and made for them to focus on, right? (sighs) Right? Okay, that was a lot. And I don't even know if I made any sense in the slightest. Um, I wanted to do kind of like this condensed, comprehensive art historical understanding, which is definitely not the way to go as we have, as, you know, as many art historians have tried to do before and they have failed miserably. But I don't know. I hope I kind of like switched around and maybe produced a couple of like constructive criticism on the state of art history these days. Which is also, why I think, it's it's very positive and very interested and very like, um, how would you say like it benefits us a lot to focus on contemporary art and to focus on more practical approaches to curation and approaches to art than what's been done before. Um, I do hope this episode gave you notions of art history and allowed you to see the issues of having a discipline mounted, controlled, and formed by white men and um, that's all i have for you today my brain is completely fried but i still wanted to do a proper outro because this is the last episode of season one i'll probably be back in two months by the end of january because a girl has a thesis to produce and a research presentation but it's been lovely it's been a wild journey it's been very nerve-wracking to start a podcast because i'm like what if people care what if people don't and, you know, it's like I want people to listen and I kind of like want that external validation of people being like, oh my God, this is great. Oh my God, you're doing great. And that's what the first episode was all about. Like I remember just having all of those comments and then it kind of like died, dialed down. And then like I was saying last Saturday, a friend of mine was like, oh no, I listened to the podcast. I'm on episode four now. And I just like, that meant the world for me. And I could have cried because it's just like, you know, it's listening and caring about what I have to say, even though it's a lot of ramble, but you know, I don't know it's it's i'm sharing things that i really like and i'm passionate about and so if there is even one person that likes it and enjoys it and actually actively listens to it it's i guess all i could hope for um so thank you thank you and thank you for being present for listening to the music for watching the shows um for paying attention to what i'm saying for understanding me being raw and vulnerable with you it's a big platform. I can't even listen my voice like when it's like, you know, I can't even play it back when there's people around. So I appreciate you for that. Um I'm willing to take any suggestion that you might have for season two. I think I might keep the same format. Um, but I don't know yet. Um, nothing is set in stone. I'll probably work on that over the break. Um, but yeah, that's pretty much it. It's, it's 11.20 now I'm gonna go to bed Um, thank you so much for bearing with me for a whole 11 weeks I love you, you're very dear to my heart and I'll talk to you not soon but soon enough I guess with all my love from the deepest part of my heart have a lovely holiday um, if you celebrate or not if you don't and I'll see you, sometimes, someday. Bye Ah oui, pardon, j'ai oublié Bisous, bisous